0: Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The Ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in Verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Well, we live in the epicenter of the counterculture movement here in the Bay Area. And if I ever questioned or doubted that, I was reminded of it again this morning as I was driving to church down a six-lane wide interstate highway. There in front of me was the most popular color of car that people drive, a white vehicle which had a bumper sticker on the back of it, which proudly proclaimed morally flexible. (laughs) I am so thankful that God is not morally flexible. I am so thankful that we have a Heavenly Father who cares enough About us as his children on this earth, that he has set the boundaries so that we have a sense of security and justice with him. I am so thankful that we have a God not only of love, but of justice and judgment, aren't you? That he holds us accountable to his wonderful moral principles. October 22, 1844 is a date that was fixed by Jesus himself, the wonderful numberer. This past Wednesday was October, pardon me, this past Thursday, I believe, was October 22, wasn't it, 2009. I do not believe that any Seventh-day Adventist should let the date of October 22 pass without thinking of the wonderful truth that God has revealed to us as Seventh-day Adventists of the cleansing of His sanctuary, beginning with our alienated hearts and removing our enmity of sin and replacing it with His divine love. We must never forget this wonderful truth. that has made us what we are as a people. It is the third angel's message in verity, to surrender that means that we surrender that which is unique to us, Jesus' way of preparing us for translation at the Second Coming. And we might as well become Seventh day Baptists then if we surrender that, because there's nothing more unique about us as Seventh day Adventists. But Jesus has fixed that date, the wonderful numberer, October 22. 1844, yes, Jesus, the prophet, revealed to Daniel when he would commence the final process of finishing the mystery of God. The mystery of God, that God desires to dwell with us by his Holy Spirit and to remove the enmity of our sin and to restore us to fellowship with him. That is a mystery that pagans deny that the gods would ever dwell with men. But we have an Emmanuel, a God who dwells with us. As our great high priest, he entered the final phase of the work of atonement in applying his blood to the hearts of sinners who would be responsible to his love as revealed in his cross for them personally. This is the meaning of the cleansing of the sanctuary of Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. 1844 was our great disappointment in our Adventist heritage. The hope was that Jesus would make his return visit in in glory to this earth to purify it from sin and to take his own with him. Now, that seems like ancient history, doesn't it? 1844, 165 years ago. Was Jesus' prophecy untrue? No. No. No, it wasn't. Is his blood incapable of cleansing a people properly so that they can appear with him at his second coming? Is Jesus' blood incapable of doing that? No. It is capable of cleansing us from our sin. You know, for some, the answer to that question is, let's just forget about October 22, 1844, in the story of salvation history. Let's acknowledge it as simple human error. However, to deny a date that has been fixed by Jesus himself is to take our eyes off of the only remedy to the sin problem. He is the heavenly psychiatrist who has the solution to our heart alienation with God, and by faith he invites us to follow him into the most holy place. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, we read these words, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. And then verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. You know, we are redeemed not with corruptible things like silver, gold, and wood, and hay, and stubble. We are redeemed by the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ. Do you think that Jesus' blood dried up at the foot of the cross 2,000 years ago? Nix. Nada. Nada. It doesn't dry up because it's incorruptible. And he continues to minister to it to those who follow him into the most holy place to this day. And that blood appeals to you by this way, that it makes the cross ever-present to you now so that as you see something, as you appreciate what it costs the Son of God to literally go to hell for you and pay your wages of sin, which is eternal death, That blood, seen and perceived is genuine faith, and it reconciles the alienated heart, and it restores fellowship with him. That's why that blood cleanses the conscience. Now, there is a sanctuary in heaven. It is just as real as there was a sanctuary in antiquity on earth amidst ancient Israel. God's temple is composed of Himself, we are told in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Yes, God's temple is composed of Himself and and the Lamb and all of the living beings who abide with Him and live by the impulse of the Creator. And Jesus has promised, you and me, in that message to Philadelphia as the true witness. That those who overcome, he will make them to be a pillar in the temple of his God. Talk about being a pillar of the church. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to be some kind of upright column supporting the roof and so forth. This means that you will be a living component of the heavenly sanctuary temple. In fact, he's fitting you to be that right now. That you may move at his impulse and his desire. He's given you a body so that you can perform His will. It's a glorious prospect that we are being prepared now by Jesus to take our place in His living temple above. God has endowed to every one of us the conscious right to justice. I think that I, when I was a youngster, God built into me a sense that God has is going to right the wrongs of the world. Good is going to triumph. Evil will not continue to have its day and be an eternal principle. God built that into me as a lad, I remember. Wrongs are to be made right. The righteous are to be vindicated. The unjust are to be condemned. There is a cosmic justice for all. And as a young person, I used to think that it was so wrong that the wicked bullies should get away with pushing around those who were minding their own business and staying out of trouble and trying to do what was right, surely God must set things right. God must triumph over evil. Good must triumph over evil. Somehow God built that into my consciousness, and I can't help but think that God has built that into every human consciousness, a sense of justice and judgment. In fact, Scripture affirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And God is a God who sets the boundaries in his family And it gives me a sense of security to know that there are boundaries. Doesn't it, you? If God never set any boundaries, you would think he didn't care. And that you could just go on and do whatever you wish. And how would that make you feel? Totally insecure in a cosmic chaos. But I'm so thankful as a child on this earth that i'm not here alone and that god cares about me so much to make me secure to know that there are boundaries with him i'm thankful to be able to walk on this platform and not go flying off and spinning off into space aren't you that's because there's some laws that govern that which god has put into place god is not morally flexible god is a god of morality I can remember as a lad hearing the preacher proclaiming the judgment hour message that uh, at any time my name could come up before the bar and I, would I be ready? What answer would I give for my life? And I heard many say that they hoped that their good deeds would outweigh their bad deeds. And the conventional wisdom was that if you were a good person and helped the poor and the elderly and didn't curse and have bad thoughts, then you were in. But the nagging thought was always there, have I done enough to tip the balances in my favor with the judge? And so the thought of judgment and standing before the great law of God was a fearsome thing for me as a lad. I think I was kind of like that Roman governor, Felix, before whom the Apostle Paul reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to to come. And Felix trembled and he answered, Go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Felix could only think of self in the light of cosmic justice, and he trembled. One has not only to think of the deeds that he has done in the body, but also of the thoughts, very thoughts and intents of the heart, for it is enough to cause anyone to tremble for for fear of self, if you begin going there. As far as the thoughts and the intents, Ecclesiastes says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. We need a reconciliation of alienated hearts down deep, don't we, in this cleansing of the sanctuary. Before automatic uh, railroad warning sensors, British law required bridge keepers to flag down trains if the bridge was out. And one night, a passenger train plunged into a river because the bridge keeper failed to do his duty. And at the trial, the judge asked him, Did you you wave your lantern in warning? Yes, Your Honor, he answered. But later, after being exonerated... He told his friends, I'm glad the judge didn't ask me if the lantern was lighted. (laughs) You know, it's true that wrongdoers often face a partial judgment, even in this life. But imagine a judgment in which everything comes out in the open. The Bible describes such a judgment that will take place when life is finished It says, for man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. And so open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. We have been doing a series on the great teachings of the Bible, and this morning it's appropriate at this season of the year to have a message on the sanctuary and the judgment message, a key message that Seventh-day Adventists represent before the world. The Scriptures bring this uh, universal final judgment into focus here in Revelation 20:12. It says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of what? And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The absolute justice in this trial is assured by what is written in the books, according to the verse. No one will be able to bear false witness or present a bribe to the court. The record is all there in the book of life and in the other books. There will be no partiality dished out for the rich or poor, for the small or for the great. And the magnitude of this trial which takes place before the whole universe is portrayed graphically by the prophet Daniel. Daniel 12, verse 1, it says, At that time, that is the time of the end, shall Michael, which is another name for Christ, stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written where? In the book. So here is a pledge straight out of heaven, even though a time of trouble such as never was, engulfs the world, that God's people will have nothing to fear, for they shall be delivered, because they are found written where? Where? in the book. Now clearly in this time of judgment then this book is of supreme importance. Is your name written there? This book is of supreme importance because being written in it means eternal life. To be blotted from it means eternal death, or as the record states it in Revelation 20.15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now this book of life was in existence long before Gutenberg changed history as he began printing books and reason proclaims that the heavenly court doesn't need computers to log the records of the human race, God has been printing books long before Gutenberg. He has a book of life. The Bible's clear. Revelation 17, 18, that there was a book of life from the foundation of the world. God has been printing books since the foundation of the world. Equally clear, we are told that the true worshipers of God in Revelation 13, verse 8, the true worshipers of God are written in this book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So this book is the Lamb's book. This book is the Lamb's book, and the Lamb is none other than who, folks? Jesus Himself. And this means that the life of God's people is written in Jesus. The life of God's people is written in Jesus' life. This is explained by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For He, God, hath made Him to be sin for us that who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And John, in his gospel, provides in his letter a further description of how Christ is the book of life. John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God has been printing books even before the creation of this world. Jesus was the first printed book, and he is the book of life. And the word was made flesh, John goes on to say in verse 14, and dwelt among us, tabernacled it says. Aren't you so glad that when we are so recalcitrant and resistant to God, he still pitches his tent amongst our tents, and he dwells amongst us. And he goes with us, and he protects us, and he cares for us, and he guides us, even when we're so rebellious. Aren't you so thankful for that? Unmistakably, this word that was from the beginning is Christ himself, and he is the one that God gave to the world, and he is God's message to the human race. Paul in Hebrews sharpens this truth by proclaiming that God has spoke, specifically spoken unto us by his Son. This was heaven's mutual plan. The text states God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God does not hold our trespasses against us, for they are written in Christ. God's book of instruction to the human family. This is his gift to the world. This is none other than the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And all of this makes sense. We, we are written in Christ, the Lamb that was slain before we knew our lost condition, before we existed, before the foundation of the world. And this is because, Paul says, in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall die. All be made alive. Everyone has been written into this book of life in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The way we are written into this book just defies forgery. You want to know how you were written into Christ? Here it is. You remember Thomas, the doubter, the disciple who had questions. He was deeply concerned with only the genuine, the authentic, and so he demanded to see the prints of the nails in Christ's hands, which would confirm the crucifixion and the resurrection. Dear friends, those nail prints in the hands of Jesus is a record beyond question that is going to last for eternity. You are recorded in Jesus' hands, in his body. The scars in his hands could never be erased. And this word, Jesus, this book of life, will forever declare the justice of God and enable every sinner to stand before the judgment without fear. Indeed, the redeemed will gladly acknowledge they made these marks in his hands. The nails were their writing instruments that as sinners they used when they wrote the record on Jesus' body himself. But this dare not engender fear. The promise is beyond question. There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You know, being written in the book of life can be, be compared also to being written in another book called the book of remembrance with a very similar result in the judgment. And we read about it in Malachi chapter 3 in verse 16. Those who are written therein belong to the Lord and they have nothing to fear. Is my name written there on the page white and fair? In the book of thy kingdom is my name written there. Dear heart, everyone, every soul's name is written in the body of Jesus Christ. He's the book of life. Jesus gave the assurance that there should be rejoicing because your names are written in heaven. Luke chapter 10 verse 20. They are written there because he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's why they're written there. This is the record Yes, hear it clearly. This is the written record that will stand in the day of God's judgment. We had planned a very pleasant overnight holiday up to Lake Tahoe, and we had booked a room online. And upon arriving at night quite late, we went to the desk to complete the registration for our accommodations And the clerk informed us that our name was not on her record. She was completely booked up in her rooms and could do nothing for us. We pleaded with her several times and she would not budge. She wouldn't even call any other accommodations in the area. Our names were not written in her book. We were faced with either turning around, coming back home, or making other arrangements on our own. You know, it is so disappointing not to have anyone expecting your arrival or even holding your reservation. Isn't that disappointing? Dear friends, you are written in the hands of Jesus. Your reservations are made. He is holding it for you and you are expected there will be no disappointment for you in the day of judgment. The word books is obviously a euphemism. Just like being a pillar in the temple of God is a euphemism. Recent human technology and processing and storing data helps us understand that God certainly has all of the information about our lives accurately recorded, including data that is impossible for any man-made computer to catch, which is our thoughts and our motives. If computers have taught us anything, Val, it's taught us that God must have thought about them all long before we ever dreamt them up. The difference between God's computer and my computer is mine got scrubbed two weeks ago, and it just dawned on me last night, and so I'm kind of in the pits right now, because all the stuff that was on there, I've gone all over the North American continent, and now it's just gone. I'm going to have to restore it some way, but God's computer never gets scrubbed. It's a perfect record, his book of life. His law describes what he is like, and he's the principle on which his universe is founded. Any act or motive that conflicts with this law puts us at odds with God. It becomes a part of our life record, the books by which John says we will be judged. Revelation 20, 12 makes clear that there are books and that there are another book, which is the book of life. The contrast is clear. We have seen that this book of life is none other than Christ himself, that we are written in this book, written by the nail prints in his hands, But what about those other books that are opened and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works? I'm sorry to go a little long, but the time munchers had a good time today, okay? (laughs) Nothing wrong with that (laughs) because I'm a time muncher too. (laughs) I want to finish this today. If Christ is the book of life, then sinners must be the book of death. Yes, if Christ is the book of life, then sinners must be the book of death. You know, Paul refers to the believers as epistles or letters, each one a small book known and read of all men. There is no way to escape the personal biography that each person writes in the life that is lived. Those who by faith agree that they are sinners are written into the book of life. Christ Jesus, for he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who do not have faith in the pardon that was bought at infinite cost must stand on their own record and be judged accordingly. Sinners find pardon when they believe and understand that they made the record by those nail prints. And now look at John chapter 3 and verse 18. John chapter 3 and verse 18. Where we read, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What a glorious promise. There is no condemnation in the judgment for those who believe on the name of the Son of God. And since God gave his only begotten Son for the world, it means that the entire human race has been written in him, the book of life. The record in the book of life is the final means of determining the cases of the righteous in the judgment. And though unworthy, they are not condemned because they overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And they love not their lives unto the death. And they came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In what appears to be a happy exception... To Paul's statement about all appearing in judgment, Jesus declares good news. Look at John 5:24. John 5:24. it says, "In very truth, anyone who gives heed to what I say and puts his trust in him who sent me has hold of eternal life and does not come up for judgment, but has already passed from death to life." And the word judgment here means the condemnation of the judgment. The point is that God wants to exempt us from the terrible experience of facing judgment and being condemned. The Father has turned this over to Christ, the task of judging men. Aren't you so glad for that? In John 5.22, it says, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to who? To the Son. And in verse 27 it says, And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So our judge then is Jesus himself. There could be no one more friendly to sinners than that, Jesus himself. If a human court, in a human court the judge and all of the jury members are warm, personal friends, you could hardly wish for a more favorable chance of acquittal. And the happy prospect is that Jesus will not even judge the lost. Yeah, the Word says that. Look at John 12 and verse 47. Jesus will not even judge the lost. John 12, verse 47. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Do you believe Jesus' words? He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. Oh, I'd like to know that. If it isn't Jesus, then who is it? The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That means the gospel of the cross of Jesus and his love and the law will bring about a recrimination on the sinner's mind to such an extent that they will condemn themselves. They will judge themselves. And yet the Son of Man will do for us what no earthly friend can do when we are in trouble. John says, 1 John 2, verse 1, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Even Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How in the world can Jesus be our advocate in a law case if he's also our judge? I'll tell you this, God just puts all the odds in our favor. Puts all of the odds in our favor. Jesus is both judge, he's our defense attorney, he can defend us because he's already suffered the condemnation that we deserve on the cross in judgment The death that Jesus died on the cross was the condemnation that sin requires carried to its ultimate degree. God made him to be sin for us. Jesus died as the eternally lost sinner will die forsaken by his Father because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. And since he is the second Adam, we are in him corporately. If we choose to believe it, the idea is that when Jesus died, we also died. Just like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I, ego, self-love, have been crucified with Christ. That's the principle of the cross right there. Any lightning bolts of hot wrath that should have fallen on me, on sinners, already has fallen on Christ at the cross. And by accepting Jesus as our Savior, by faith we are identified with him. There is not the slightest reason why anyone should have to duplicate Jesus' experience of dying for sin unless that person rejects his identity with Christ. What Jesus did on the cross is far more than a legal maneuver to satisfy the statutory claims of the broken law. It does that, of course, but it involves more. Our personal identification with him and his death, I am crucified with Christ. By faith, the believer, the believing sinner, accepts that he is in Christ, accepts the divine judgment on his sins, but actually suffers it in Christ. And justice makes no further claims against him, And this is why he does not come up for judgment, and everyone can have this advantage if she or he will accept it. So if you're beginning to see what the Bible tells us and what Jesus is telling us is this. If you can begin to see how much love was poured out for you on the cross, then you can say you have faith. Because when you have really come to know Jesus, loving him in a deeper, more abiding sense, just as he loves you and going to hell for you, there's no end to what that faith will do for Jesus. It will work by love. It will manifest itself in obedience to all of God's commandments, including the fourth commandment. It will... Reconcile the alienated heart to Him. Justification by faith is the reconciliation of the alienated heart to God, and sanctification is ongoing justification. It is not some kind of second blessing. It is the same faith that justifies as that sanctifies. Let's not divide up what God has married together. You can face the judgment and confidence in Christ. He is your book of life. Open the door of your heart. Be crucified with him every day. And as my friend Doug says, not just every day, but moment by moment. Is my name written there? Let's sing it, shall we? Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.